Hi everybody, this is CJ. Welcome to episode 142 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And in this episode, I have a discussion with Bryce Blankenagel of the Naked Mormonism Podcast. Bryce contacted me fairly recently asking if I'd like to come on for part of an episode of his podcast, and I said, sure, and would he mind if I also used our conversation to make an episode of my podcast as well? And he said, that was fine, so that's what we did. Bryce has a very interesting podcast he's been doing for a while, which looks at early Mormon history, which is a topic that I'm not super expert on, not by a long shot. I know kind of the basics of the basics, but I do know a fair amount of a lot of the historical context around it, sort of the Jacksonian era and the Second Great Awakening and these sorts of topics. So I had a great conversation with Bryce, and what we're both doing is we're each releasing the majority, but not all of our conversation as regular episodes of each of our podcasts, and then each of us are also going to publish the full conversation on our respective Patreon feeds. So if you are a Patreon supporter of the Naked Mormonism podcast, or if you are a Patreon supporter of the Dangerous History podcast, you will have access to the full conversation. So if you are already a Patreon supporter of one of our two shows, then you probably would just want to stop listening to this one at this point and go listen to the full one. But anyway, real quick, before I get to my discussion with Bryce, I do have some thank yous to give because, of course, this show is at least for now, entirely supported by listeners like you. So first, some gratitude for a very generous listener named Stanley, who ordered me not one but four books off of my DHP Amazon wishlist. So thanks to Stanley for ordering me Disciplined Minds, Nature Unbound, The Age of Confucian Rule, and Sharpshooting in the Civil War. All very different, very interesting books that I think will have some relevance to some things I'm doing now and some things I intend to do in the future on the DHP. Also, thanks to the following listeners for signing up to support the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon since the last episode I recorded. Big thanks to Christopher, Joseph, Rick, Mark, Aaron, Matt, and Tom. Thank you all very much. And without further ado, my conversation with Bryce Blankenagel. Today we are joined by Professor CJ from the Dangerous History Podcast and also a full-time college history professor. CJ, how are you doing today, man? Very good. Good to talk to you. You as well. Thank you for coming on. For those of um, those of the listeners who don't know what Dangerous History is, both the podcast and the idea, can you give us an introduction to what you do and what the real idea of Dangerous History is? Yeah, well, I'll try. I mean, it's it's kind of a complicated thing that has, I guess, more than one kind of uh, interpretation or application. But uh, basically, what I found as I learned history, and I've been I've been looking at history intently since I was in my early teens. My family thought I was a weirdo for this, but <laughs> you know, I, I was the kid lugging home a pile of of big nonfiction books from the library every other day, and. Then pursued it in college, got a bachelor's and a master's degree in it, and 
what I found from all that was that a lot of what what really happened is different from what a lot of people think. Even people – now, obviously, you and I both know there's a lot of people just walking around the street who just don't know a damn thing about history at all. And couldn't care less. Yeah, yeah. But – they're not as big of a problem because it's sort of like the the old saying, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. <laughs> yeah, that old Dunning-Kruger effect. Exactly, exactly. It's it's the people who, you know, used to watch a little bit of History Channel back when they had history on that channel. Yeah, the, <laughs> the bastion of uh, verifiability it is. Right, yeah. <laughs> back before it turned into all ancient aliens and Cajuns and ice road truckers all the time. <laughs> Um, and you know, the people who've read maybe some, even some real books, but they're not very good books. They're, they're kind of written by hacks like Doris Kearns Goodwin or somebody, um, that there's a whole ton of history that even people who consider themselves fairly informed on history are just clueless about. And that these things are dangerous in a whole bunch of, whole bunch of different ways because they make you, they make you ask questions. They make you doubt they make it harder for you to be manipulated and all that sort of thing. And so uh, my podcast is, is very kind of wide ranging in terms of topic and time period. I'm, I'm all over the place because that's I'm kind of all over the place in, in my interests. I like to just sort of follow the thread of something, um, follow the muse. And so I guess the one thing that unites it is I'm kind of always skeptical about power. I'm always skeptical about the kind of standard establishment narrative, whatever that might be. Um, And so, yeah, I just decided, you know what, I think more people need to hear this than just the 30 kids sitting in one of my classes. And um, and besides that, you know, I mean, the stuff I, I teach is just... You know, U.S. history, world history. I can't go for three hours on like one particular topic that I find interesting that week, much as I would want to. And so my show kind of fills that uh, fills that need for me. I really like that uh, interpretation because um, history is a very powerful thing, and um, often it's said that you know history belongs uh, to the victor. You know, eloquence belongs to the conqueror. They write their story. They write their own narrative. History is made from the inside, as it's so often said. So, you know, challenging that and trying to get down to the baseline facts of what really happened, I think that is where where history goes from being just the, the standard textbook history to the dangerous side. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you did an episode, I guess this was probably three or four months back now. And I think initially you aired it as just a Patreon-only episode, but then you kicked it over to the regular feed because it was such a good episode where you talked about the the ideal behind chasing dangerous history. Because there's the history that we're told that our founding fathers were these white knights and that they were so uh, you know amazing and righteous and that they they were um, ideologues and that, that they had these these amazing motivations. But when we get down to the fundamental points of it, the dangerous history version of them is a lot more fascinating than the version that we read in our high school textbooks. Yeah, that episode um, I think was called something like Dangerous History and Personal Liberation. And I I put that together, kind of my thoughts, because honestly, a lot of Dangerous History is kind of depressing <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. you're, you're destroying people's fairy tales, essentially. And, you know, it is kind of a downer sometimes to really kind of show just how how not – happy endings a lot of this stuff is and how often the good guys don't really win and honestly how often there aren't really good guys at all and oh yeah 
So, you know, I kind of put that together as as my antidote to I don't want people to get the impression that I'm simply being downbeat because I'm being downbeat or that I'm destroying people's fairy tales because it's fun. Um, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's amusing anyway, but yeah. – <laughs> And deserved as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean it, it needs to be done, but it, it's not – let me put it this way. I wish some of the rosier fairy tales about history were true. Oh, right. <laughs> because you know things would be a bit better if they were in some ways. Um, but to me, the idea is that when you believe in things that are just fairy tales that are designed to kind of manipulate you, um, that ultimately that prevents you from kind of you know, for lack of a better term, living up to, to your own potential and kind of the more that you see things for what they really are, the more you can then um, act act in ways that actually will make more sense to kind of liberate yourself. There you go. You know, I run into this all the time um, and it, it does go to like the the fairy tales that people often believe in when it comes to their, their, their history. Um I enjoy studying history because we have to compare accounts and and this is, you know, this is widely something of American history that I've been exposed to. So that's the perspective I'm speaking from. But I am interested in always seeing um, one version of a history and then seeing it slowly change over time to morph into become the narrative that we speak of today. And this happens often in not only with a founding father's history, but in religious history, where you see they are revising, actively revising history from one version of a story to another version that's only two or three years later. And you can see kind of the motivations behind revising that history. And this is a soapbox I oftentimes jump on and, and shout from the rooftops that I get frustrated with is what happens when we revise history is we're changing reality. We have to try and get down to the fundamentals of of what makes history actually history. And when we're trying to parse through all of the revision, um, especially going further and further back where literacy rates and and uh, uh, general like uh, people recounting their own stories drop significantly, you know, it's really hard to parse out what really happened because as as was said earlier, history always belongs to the victor in this case. Yeah, I would take a little bit different take on some of what you're saying in that I, I would say that history actually, I don't think, is what actually happened. Um, I think mm-hmm. that history is people later trying to come up with a depiction of what happened. And the, diff- the difference is subtle and important in terms of um, it's it's the difference between a thing itself and a, a picture or a description um, that's trying to represent it. Now, the picture or the description – um, ideally would get as close to the thing as possible unless it's supposed to be modern art or something. But um, that the picture or the description can never quite be the thing, although the goal is to, at least theoretically, to get it as accurate of a representation as possible. So I don't think that all revisionism is bad. Um, my, my view is Interesting. It, it, it kind of – it depends on on – why it's being revised and kind of what's being done. So, um, for example, I think one that one that very few people would disagree with is if new information comes to light that wasn't known previously, um, then revision is appropriate. Fair, yeah. And an- another would be if 
if new perspectives new perspectives are taken into account on something that weren't taken into account before, uh, that sure. revision might be appropriate. So, um, yeah, I mean, my my and I I did an episode on this early on that kind of um, some forms of of revisionism I think are are appropriate. It kind of depends on why they're being done and how they're being done and so forth. Well, I guess maybe I'm uh, I'm more motivated against revisionist with a capital R in this case. So um, the people who uh, try and rally for uh, changes in the Texas history books about who our founding fathers were um, and, and what they did, you know, revising the history so that it paints this rosy picture and it creates these fairy tales. I'm just as skeptical of a, um, of basically any historical narrative that I read based on who made that narrative right and and i think you described it well uh revising narratives and revising historical models is important because we have to construct historical models in order to understand the history because we're only looking at snapshots and trying to construct a narrative around that so revising those based on new evidence that is necessary but the idea of um ideologically revising something because there are motivations to paint a prettier picture than what actually happened. That's what I take issue with. Yeah, certainly, you know, I don't, I don't uh, support the kind of revisionism where people are um, kind of deliberately falsifying um, records or, or being deliberately um, kind of, you know, lying by omission, for example, leaving out pieces of information that contradict their narrative, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. um, that's why I say, you know, to me, there's there's good revisionism and there's bad revisionism. It kind of depends on, on what's being done and why. Touche to that. So let me ask you, um, Professor CJ, I want to get to something that I'm trying to figure out for myself here. And maybe you can shed some light on this. What is it about history that's so fascinating to you? I mean, obviously, you had a drive from a very young age, as you told us. What was it that really got you involved in it so much and, and caught your eye? Well, it's hard to say whether, you know, it's one of these things, nature or nurture. Like, why are some people just kind of curious and kind of skeptical and contrary? And um, I, I guess I'm just sort of wired up that way. And um, the way I look at it is when you're born into this life – you're you're dropped into a very interesting TV series that's already on like season eight thousand. <laughs> I mean, can, can you imagine being dropped into uh, I don't know Game of Thrones or something, assuming it ever runs that many seasons, right? <laughs> and you're looking around, and what you're seeing is pretty interesting, but at the same time. Uh, if you're the curious type, you have to ask yourself, well, well, how how did it get to this? You know, yeah. <laughs> what the hell did the Lannisters and everybody do before? How how did it get to this point? Um, yeah. And and so that's how it is to me. I mean, I, I see history in the same way that that a, a person who's really into Lord of the Rings sees Lord of the Rings, or a people really into Game of Thrones sees Game of Thrones. Um, where if you're dropped in thousands of years into it, you have to ask yourself, well, what got it to this point? Um, so to me, I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of weird. I have a hard time understanding people who don't find it uh, interesting, you know, who don't look around the world today and go, oh, wait a minute, you know, just to, to pick a few random examples, how the Middle East get as screwed up? Is it like, why is it that way? It can't just be something <laughs> in the water, you know, yeah, right. or, you know, why is the United States the way it is, you know, in both good ways and bad ways, you know, whatever it might be. 
Yeah, because there isn't really a start or an end point to any given narrative, right? I mean, I made this mistake when I started the podcast. I said, okay, yeah, let's say Serial Mormon History Podcast. All right, we're going to start with the birth of Joseph Smith, because where else do you start with when it comes to Mormonism? Well, it turns out, you know, Joseph Smith and the Smith family and many of the religions in the Burned Over District, well, I should say all of the religions in the Burned Over District, were heavily influenced by the time and place in which they were uh, they arose, I mean, you can't understand um, Campbellite theology without having some sort of foundation in, in knowledge in the European iterations of the Christian Protestant Christianities that were coming across the, the ocean. I mean, you can't understand some of the finer points of, of like um, – Let's let's say uh, here's a random example of a like a three tiered heaven system without understanding that it you know it derived from Swedenborgianism and prior to that even so like it's hard to understand any single individual inside of a world where you don't have to you know go back a few hundred years to understand how the world got to where it was in order to foster the growth of somebody like a Joseph Smith or of an Andrew Jackson or of uh, somebody who we consider a great man in history. So I guess that that's kind of the interplay between the great man theory and the tides and forces theory of history, because it's an interplay of the two. Yeah, and this problem of this problem of where to drop the needle on a particular story and uh, and the problem of you know, you want to you want to talk about one thing, and then you realize you need to do a ton on the the what led up to it and the context and so on. Um, we might call this the Dan Carlin problem, I guess. Any right. of us who who do history podcasting, it's like, you know, anytime you you intend to tell a story about one particular thing. It's always the danger that you realize, oh man, before I get to that, I have to do 19 hours of <laughs> of the backstory. <laughs> I mean, I, I myself just recently, um, like literally in the past few days, finished up an episode um, about how the Florida Everglades got drained of all things. And it's an interesting story that I've wanted to tell for a while, but the funny part is I wasn't originally intending to do that Right now, I was intending to just do a story about the rise of the so-called sugar barons, who are the um, you know very powerful special interests in Florida who who grow sugar under all sorts of government protection and subsidy and so on. And, Interesting. And then I was like, well, you know what? If I want to tell the story of these guys, like I can't not tell the story of how their sugarcane kingdom got literally created, you know, by getting wow. the the U.S. government to come in and drain the place in the first place. So, you know, that's just a, a recent example. But, yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, and I, I guess that, that does get to the fundamental point of, of researching any history, right, is uh, where where exactly do we begin the story? Because, you know, a history is uh, compelling when you understand it through the story or the individuals who uh, who progressed through a given storyline. Whereas, um, you know, I do – I personally take issue with uh, like my my history education in junior high and high school because I was never interested in history during those years. It took me uh, leaving the the structured education history uh, and studying dangerous history. You know, pardon my the the uh, the borrowing of the term, but it took me studying dangerous history and actual stories of these people in order to get interested because I wasn't interested in memorizing names and dates and uh, big battles. You know, it's it's so much more compare uh, compelling to latch onto somebody. And this is the way that we tell all stories in a movie or in a comic book strip or in um, 
in any book, we have to grab onto a certain small subsect of individuals or one hero or anti-hero and follow them as they progress through whatever happened in their life. And that's the way that we learn and truly comprehend history. And the most, I guess, maybe one of the most useful reasons for studying history is that oftentimes these stories that we learn and these people that we we study, they're awfully analogous to things that are going on today. You know, we can we can look at a past president or we can look at a, a past religious leader or whatever and say, wow, that's awfully analogous to what's happening today. You know, I wonder if what happened back then uh, is going to happen now or something to that effect. You know, it's it's a very rich understanding and it's it's more of a holistic understanding of reality, in my opinion. Yeah, I've been a big fan of just the general concept of cyclical history for a long, long time. And, you know, not that I believe that, like, history repeats itself super closely to what exactly what happened before, but that there's clearly kind of um, repeating motifs and, and rhythms and that sort of thing, um, things that tend to recur roughly every, you know, so many years or whatever, approximately. And um, it, it's when, – when you're given the version that it's just sort of like one damn thing after another, kind of disconnected bits of, of trivia questions and that sort of thing, I mean – um, it, it, it robs a lot of the life out of it, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm always fascinated to see overlapping historical timelines, things that you would never think happened at the same time, finding out that like, oh, these two famous people lived at the basically, you know, they were born five years apart and lived, you know, 35 miles away from each other. But they they obviously followed completely different story arcs and, and paths. And it's just fascinating to see, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I guess that kind of gets back to the, the what I said earlier. It's this holistic approach, seeing everything from uh, a bird's eye view and the, the 2020 hindsight that we can uh, <laughs> we can fantasize that we have. Yeah, which I'm I'm curious as to, like, you know, the the Cliff Notes version of your own background and how you started your podcast and sort of what you've what you've learned as you've delved into this um well it's it's a um it's <laughs> it's a fascinating story to myself but that's because we all are our own heroes right um so i i'll tell you history the way that the history is reported in the mormon religion is obviously a a faith promoting endeavor. And it's, uh, it's, it's something when you read about the stories from the church's perspective about these incredible feats that Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or these founding fathers of Mormonism were able to accomplish. It's like, wow, these people were, you know, led by God and they were obviously working with God's blessing and everything. And, um, as I, I I left the church in my teenage years just out of apathy, but then eventually I got to the point where I started studying the history and realizing that the history that I was taught before about the church is highly revised in – well, <laughs> to go back to what we were talking about earlier, it's badly revised. It's horribly um, one-sided narrative that they, they claim, and I couldn't deal with that. I was I was incredibly frustrated – by the narrative that I had always understood as opposed to the narrative that uh, is much more historically accurate. So that was the point that I decided, you know what, I'm just going to try and lay this out uh, in, in a chronological format. I'm going to try and understand Mormon history, and I'm going to study it as I produce the podcast so everybody uh, – 
is learning each episode as I am learning it because I'm still very early on in my historical studies from a broad perspective. So that was kind of the motivation behind it. And that's why I say it's the naked Mormonism podcast because we try and strip away the biases and try and really assess what happened in the the naked history. Because, you know, (laughs) when a certain version of history is told with a certain motivation – it's important to understand what that motivation is and why the history is told a specific way. And I like to, uh, I like to try and ascertain motivations for why things have been revised the way they are, which is, uh, why I, I typically do on the, the podcast, uh, what uh, historians try to do in studying, any subject, I'll say, okay, this is what the so-called pro-Mormon sites say about it. This is what the so-called anti-Mormon books and sites say about it. This is what Mormon historians say about it. This is, and now this is my, uh, this is my assessment of the situation. So you, as the listener, you decide for yourself. You uh, skepticize the situation and see what makes the most sense for yourself. And I think that's kind of uh, the only honest way to approach history that's so very polarizing and is mired in people with motivations trying to tell a certain version of the history that may or may not be accurate. That's interesting. Um, Are there any like surprises or kind of big picture takeaways that you've you've picked up while doing your podcast? Um, You know, things that you learned that you didn't know. Um, not in terms of like specific facts or anything, but but in terms of like how to look at things. Um, if have you picked up anything that just sort of surprised you? I would think that my overall takeaway, and this is probably a similar takeaway to anybody that studies history in depth, any given history, uh, history is a lot more fluid than we think. Um, and this goes back to something we were talking about earlier. You know, there's there's history of what happened, and then there's the history of the models that we construct to explain what happens. You know, the pictures that we try and paint in order to describe a situation. And I guess that's kind of been my main takeaway is when somebody claims a certain fact or a certain model of history, it's necessary to uh, assess what they have claimed and why. And then try and uh, take a skeptical or a contrarian stance and say, okay, what what would be the case if what they're claiming is completely false? Or what is the fal- falsifiability in their their model or their historical structure? And that that's probably the most fun and also the most challenging part of studying history is trying to figure out what if, what really happened, right? Because that's not so easy to figure out. Um whether it's just a single point in history, whether it's uh, some aspect of, you know, this week, this thing happened, this big thing happened, or it's um, this uh, this uh, this snapshot of 50 years in this specific religious history is um, interesting in this aspect, but there are multiple interpretations of that snapshot. So, I guess that's probably why it's so fascinating to me is because there's just no end to the material. You know, it doesn't matter how much you study or how much you think you know about a certain topic. You're always ignorant about some aspect of it. That being said, I do want to take kind of a hard shift with you here, CJ, because we share, a, I think, a mutual interest in American history and uh, 19th century, specifically American history. And I say that confidently because 
I have an interest in all history, but I have only been studying fervently this small subsect of history. So I feel like this is a place where we could intersect a little bit. I want to talk to you about the the Great Awakening periods throughout American history, as well as kind of the overarching politics that were going on during these times, because there's so much... There, <laughs> There's just so much to parse through here, but it's fun to talk about even at a theoretical level with somebody who shares this level of perspective. But I want to take that kind of and dovetail off of uh, the, this conversation and go into the Second Great Awakening, because that's kind of where the focus of this podcast, uh, Naked Mormonism, uh, lies, is where Joseph Smith grew up and the incredibly... Uh, well, the burned over district, as it was known by, oh, God, I cannot remember the name of the guy that created the burned over district. Um, or the, he coined the term in like the 1860s or 70s or something, but it was basically there was no fuel left to burn because the religious fires have burned through it so many times. And that's where Mormonism gets its start. That's where um, Campbellite Baptists get their start. That's where uh, the Millerites and the Seventh-day Adventists get their start. That's where so many of these quintessential American religions really began was out of the burned over district in, you know, Western New York area. What is your take on the burned over district and how do you think that it kind of came to be? Yeah, well, the, my understanding of it is that there have been some historians fairly recently um, who've kind of looked back through various records and have argued that um, the burned over district wasn't quite as unique as we think it was. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I've, I've got to admit here that I've not done enough digging into that question to have an educated opinion. Um, my gut is that you know, maybe you can look through church records and different things and say, look, you know, there's a spike in religiosity in these other places too. Um, but on the other hand, the fact is it seems like more new things, not, not just, oh, people getting, you know, fired up for religion again and, and going to church in bigger numbers, but like genuinely new religious movements starting from scratch, you know, or, or, you know, Obviously, they're, they're usually built on Christianity, but basically new new takes on it, right? That more of those things clearly come out of Western New York than anywhere else at the time. And so yeah, I, and, I think there's some truth to it. And it seems like what the, the religions that did crop up out of that area kind of have the longevity that other religions cropping up out of other areas don't. You know, the, these religions are still around, whereas like the uh, religions that typically uh, – or that we kind of tend to typify in other areas, uh, like, you know, these small cults of like the Ephrata Cloister and the, the Oneida group and the, uh, the Rosicrucians and whatnot that didn't actually come out of the Burned Over District – we don't really hear much from those anymore, but I mean, the Methodists and the Seventh-day Adventists and the the Mormons and the, all of these other religions, they still stuck around. I wonder if there's anything that we can point to that might have to do with the longevity of these specific religions. Yeah, I don't I don't know, but it seems like there are some um, – by the way, I, I think it was – I could be wrong. I think it was Charles Finney. Um, who coined the term burned over district. Yes, yes, that is correct. Yes, Charles Finney, thank you. Yeah, who's, I guess, kind of 
one of the founders of what's called uh, New School Presbyterianism, which Presbyterianism kind of split at that point into the more evangelical uh, side, which is called New School, and then the the more kind of traditional, um, less emotional side that was known as Old School back then. But um, you know, the the fact that somebody like Charles Finney would say, "Hey, there was just something particular about these these western counties of New York that really were kind of a fertile ground for." for revivalism like i i think you know you have to take into account um when you're when you're trying to figure out history you have to take into account kind of non-quantifiable subjective information to some extent you know i mean Hmm. um it it doesn't mean that you don't take it with a grain of salt and you don't kind of cross check it and whatever but on the other hand you know the fact that a leading revivalist minister of the time period said that this was kind of a, a special place for all this stuff. Um, to me, that 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 should be given some weight. Well, that's I think that's fair, but it, I mean, yeah, and it could also have been his subjective experience. But I guess when we zoom far enough out and we see the the religions that have lasted since then that Charles Finney was exposed to and was preaching around, you know, because I, I I guess there may be something to it. Um, and I, I want to go back to what you said, and, and and pardon me here, I'm just taking this off of a Wikipedia article, so take that with a big grain of salt. But in the Burned Over District of the Second Great Awakening, it talks about uh, Linda Pritchard. Uh, this is a quote from the article, quote, uses statistical data to show that compared to the rest of New York State, the Ohio River Valley in the lower Midwest and the country as a whole, the religiosity of the Burned Over District was re- was typical rather than exceptional. So, I mean, maybe it is kind of a newer school of thought that what was going on in the burned over district wasn't specific to just that area, but it was, you know, kind of um, more of uh, indicative of the broader trend of religiosity in the area or in the broader area. Um, But I don't know if you have – I'm kind of compelled by what you said earlier, CJ, is if you have Charles Finney who's a preacher – at the time saying that there's something weird about this area, maybe there's something special to that. I don't know. I don't know what to make of all of it. Sure. And like you said, you know, when you tick off the the list of, of kind of new religions that get started there, I mean, it's pretty impressive as far as not just new religions, but new religions that in many cases end up uh, sticking around for a while. And what I find very interesting is the area that they talk about as the burned over district, essentially it coincides with – the path of the Erie Canal. Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that too, because that was, I mean, that was a boom to that area. Yeah, that was a big deal. I mean, that was the equivalent of like getting the first, you know, big highway built through your your area or something. I oh, mean, yeah. that, that was huge. Yeah, Rochester exploded when that happened. I mean, they they finished it in what was it twenty six? I think it was. Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, and, and I don't think it's a coincidence, number one, the timing, right? Which, you know, some people date the Second Great Awakening as starting way back in the 1790s. To me, that's that's being a bit too expansive with it. Um, I, I think kind okay. of 1820s is really when it's really kind of up and going. I wonder if they're wrapping in the Campbellites into that because Alexander Campbell kind of really began his preaching in kind of the – 
I, it was about the mid 1790s where the cannibalism started to become a real thing. So I wonder if just wrapping him up specifically into it uh, draws that time frame out towards the 1790s instead of just being localized towards like the 1810s, 1820s. Yeah, I mean, my my thinking on it and, um, you know, maybe people much more expert on this specific area than I am who disagree, but I've always gotten the impression that the real heart of the Second Great Awakening was kind of the 1820s, 30s and 40s that like that's really when it's when it's into its own. And, yeah, you can find earlier movements and earlier things that are kind of like precursors to it. But, you know, it's sort of like you, you could say, yeah, the, the beatniks of the 1950s in some ways were anticipating the counterculture of the 60s and 70s. Yeah. But, you know, I don't think we would say that the, the 60s counterculture started in 1955 then, you know. Yeah, that that gets back to something we said earlier. Where do you drop that pin, right? Yeah, I mean, nothing is ever is ever created from scratch or whatever. But, yeah. you know, if I'm right that the kind of real heart of the, of the Second Great Awakening is the 1820s through about the 1840s, then it is kind of interesting, number one, that that coincides with the construction and completion of the Erie Canal, and number two, that the area that is the most often thought of as the heart of the Second Great Awakening happens to be the exact same place that the Erie Canal went through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like too much of a coincidence to say that there's not some sort of a – some sort of a either cause and effect or at the very least uh, influence – sort yeah. of a relationship going on there. There's yeah, there's some level of correlation between the two because once once that does happen, you have an incredible amount of trade that's opened up um all across the Great Lakes area. You have uh missionaries making their way um across vast areas where they would have had to take, you know, walking or uh horse and buggy prior. Oh, they just hop on a ferry for a day and then they're, you know, a hundred miles away. It's it, it's it was an incredible time, an incredible advent or or augmentation to this this small frontier area. And when you have it, like you said, you build a first massive highway in a small town, the economy explodes for a short time. And, you know, it, it ebbs and flows, it fluctuates, of course, but that initial explosion is, I think, kind of what we see with the Erie Canal and the, you know, the, the burned over district, because that is the perfect area for it to happen. Yeah, it's it's destabilizing when people suddenly experience a significant amount of change in a short period of time. And, you know, today in in the first world um, of, of the present we are so accustomed to constant change and innovation and so on that we almost take it for granted, you know, that in five years, uh, technology is going to be exponentially beyond what it is right now. But, you know, thinking in terms of 200 years ago, um, it wouldn't take nearly as much change to like knock you off balance and really kind of, um, you know, throw a monkey wrench into, into everyone's way of thinking and everyone's kind of social institutions. And, you know, people tend to react ag- against things when they happen. Um, at least some people do. And people, um, one of the places that people have historically um, gone to when they feel maybe uneasy or, or not even not even always necessarily uneasy, but simply a little bit weird, <laughs> for lack of a better term, um, in the face of significant change 
is people often tend to turn to religion and they'll, they'll sometimes turn to like, you know, let's go back to the old ways, but they'll also very often, even if they're saying that very often, what they're actually doing is innovating, you know? So what what people often describe as fundamentalism and they're, they're passing it off as we're returning to the old ways. Very often they're not really, they're, they're doing their own kind of new nouveau version of it. Let's take that as a good jump off point, uh, because I want to get into another massive factor that played into the the Second Great Awakening, if we are to grant the time frame of the 1820s to the 40s, and that is the presidency of Andrew Jackson, um, a very fascinating president of our great union. And I, I want to talk about uh, your thoughts on how much Jackson was trying to innovate politically speaking because he did some things that were seen as aberrations to some people. Um, Indian Removal Act, I think, is a fantastic example of that. Uh, He essentially caused the Panic of 1837 among a myriad of many other things that he did in his presidency that may have caused some people, as you said, to be destabilized and, you know, cause them to run back to their religions as their safety safety net basically so what is it um let me just leave a broad open question there what do you think uh andrew jackson's role and the role of politics was in kind of the religiosity of the area hmm that's an interesting question i tend to see it more as the religion influences the politics than the other way around but okay but um but then of course you know once the religion influences the politics, then I suppose the politics could then in turn influence the religion. Um, but an endless ebb and flow. Yeah. 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 I mean, Jackson is very, very, um, complex and contradictory in a lot of ways. Uh, he apparently seems to have seen himself as kind of like almost the, the next Thomas Jefferson. And yet, if you look at his actual actions during pres during his presidency, um, a lot of the things he actually did were very un Jeffersonian, especially in, in regards to, um, the, the nullification crisis where he basically threatened to invade South Carolina. Um, in, in, in general, what Jackson innovated on, and by the way, I think Thomas Jefferson, who was still alive when Jackson was was starting to rise through the system, I think Thomas uh-huh. Jefferson actually called Andrew Jackson a very dangerous man or something. <laughs> uh, he didn't even know. <laughs> yeah, which, uh, you know, t- kind of interesting. But, um, yeah. but, but Jackson, what he what, – in some ways what his innovation was that I find kind of troubling is he – in some ways was the first president to have this idea uh, of the president in particular and the executive branch in general being more equal than the other two branches of the constitutional system. So Jackson's the first guy who in the things he said and the things he did, you start to see what becomes really kind of the presidency as we have known it for the last century or so, which is, this, this notion that, yeah, we have three branches of government with checks and balances, but the presidency and the executive branch are special, and they get to be more equal than the others. <laughs> yeah. So Jackson, he articulated it in the way where he said, look, I'm the only person who's elected to office by the nation at large, by the, by the voters at large. 
Well, and he was one of those kind of early grassroots type of uh, politicians because I, I think a lot of people liked him so much because he wasn't a politician. He was just running off of his uh, his military merits. And people were like, yeah, an unexperienced guy in the highest office of government in our country? That's a great idea. Yeah, and he's definitely an unpredictable loose cannon. I mean, I, I think it's fortunate that we didn't have nukes back when – Back when Jackson was president, because I I could definitely see him. I mean, he's literally a guy who killed people in duels before he became president. So oh, oh yeah, yeah. I I was gonna say yeah. I mean, uh, generations of Native Americans today would be suffering from thyroid cancer. I mean, that, that's just how it would have happened. Yeah, I mean, I could just see him like you know one morning gets pissed off at something you know some foreign government said to him or whatever, and just all right, <laughs> let's do this. You know. <laughs> Uh, pray to God that never happens, uh, ever, ever, ever happens. And yeah, but still, I mean, yeah, obviously he did seem to capture that grassroots type of, uh, you know, what we see is like the, the backcountry blue state Democrats, these Jacksonian Democrats where they they wanted to get somebody in that was a man of the people. And well, I mean, obviously his, his, uh, presidency was met with, uh, mixed successes, uh, depending on who you were and on which side of his presidency you happened to be. Obviously, I don't think the Native Americans liked him very much. No, no, not at all, <laughs> and for good reason. And um, I actually, a long time ago, did did some episodes on my show about um, the, the Seminole Wars, a bit of Florida history, um, which I know well because I live in Florida. And he played a, a key role in the first Seminole War, which is where the United States invaded Spanish Florida and took it over. And um, he was the main general in charge of that military operation at the time. And then the second Seminole War in the 1830s and 40s, he was president. And that was in response to Indian removal, where one of the tribes he was trying to uh, move were the Seminole Indians in Florida. And the Seminole Indians decided they were willing to fight to stay where they were. And um, actually turned into the longest, most expensive Indian war in American history, and one oh, that wow. very few people even know about. Inter- yeah, I mean, I, I'm completely ignorant on it. This is interesting. I'll have to look into it more. Yeah, and I'll just say this about my, my very early episodes. Um, my audio quality is often crap. <laughs> it's the content that matters. That's, yeah, yeah, that. that's what I always say. You know, I stand by the content. Um, just, you know, <laughs> don't, don't expect my early episodes to have very great uh, production value. I was literally learning this by doing it. <laughs> yeah, I think we, I, that's the case for most podcasters. So, uh, but I will, uh, I will say, uh, the Dangerous History podcast definitely has my shining recommendation. I definitely enjoy it. And And for those listeners on Dangerous History, you can find Naked Mormonism at Facebook and Twitter and just Googling Naked Mormonism podcast. And we also have a Patreon site as well where you get access to a bonus uh, Patreon supporter content only uh, and where you can hear our entire conversation there. Um, So thank you for having me on, CJ. Yeah, thank you as well. And um, and I hope some of my listeners will go check you out. Um, I've been listening to it uh for not terribly long but it's very interesting stuff a lot of stuff i didn't know and and definitely worth checking out if it's something that anybody's interested in thank you of course for coming on to my show and doing this little uh this this cross guesting that we've done today i've really enjoyed the conversation with you um anytime that i can get a historian to come on the show and and talk about american history that i know uh i'm all over it so uh i'm really glad we got in touch and i look forward to possibly having you on in the future it's been a fun conversation conversation today well thanks very much be happy to come back on anytime 
All right, and that's where we'll wrap it up. I urge my listeners to go check out Bryce's podcast. Again, it's Naked Mormonism Podcast at NakedMormonismPodcast.com and, of course, found in all the usual podcast venues. It's a very interesting show. It is meticulously uh, researched and documented and does a lot of critical analysis. So go check it out. And, of course, I'll link to both his website and his Patreon page in the show notes for this episode. Coming up next as a Dangerous History Podcast episode, I'm working on my Rise of the Cane Kingdom about the Sugar Barons. It's kind of a sequel to Draining the Swamp in a lot of ways. And then also after that, I'll be putting together something I've been working on for a long time, and that is the Grunt's Eye perspective on the Civil War. What did it look like from kind of the average soldier, sailor, mid-level officer, that kind of thing? So look for those to be coming out in the next few weeks.